Hello, I'm Curtis Bowers, and this is Agenda Weekly. Thank you so much for joining me again this week. I really appreciate it. I hope you've had a good week. And as we see the banking system starting to collapse and things, we realize uh, things can't stay propped up forever. It'll be interesting to see what happens in this. But uh, a lot of potential consequences are going to be unfolding, and we'll talk about that more in the coming weeks. But today I'm going to talk with author Diana West, and we're going to discuss the topic of the unraveling of America. Uh, the Marxists have been very successful to slowly just rot our culture from within and just unravel the fabric that has held America together for so long. Three books of hers we're going to discuss are Death of the Grown-Up, American Betrayal, and The Red Thread. All of them are excellent, and I think you'll really enjoy her analysis of them. We're just going to briefly tap the surface on each one, hopefully encouraging you to want to get the copies um, and read them and share them with others because they're very powerful. American Betrayal is one of the five best books I've read on the topic of what has happened to our country and the real history of America. But anyway, I think you're going to really enjoy this. Diana West, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, Curtis, it's wonderful to be with you. Uh, I've been an admirer and a, a appreciated the, the books you've written over the last 10, 15 years. And I want to introduce my Agenda Weekly audience to you. And many may already be familiar with the things you've done. But um, all your books, even though they come at it from a different angle, really are talking about the Marxist unraveling of America. They're, they're, they're talking about how the, the communist movement and the Marxist philosophies, whether it was just fellow travelers or useful idiots, as Lenin would call them, of different flavors coming on board. But it was all for one goal and to collapse Western civilization. And um, they're so important. I, I, I just I appreciate all the research you've put into these and, and, and then articulating this war that we've been in for a long time, over a hundred years. Uh, my films that I made, as many watch this know, Agenda Grinding America Down, I started in 1883 with uh, the death of Karl Marx in, in the beginning of the Fabian Socialist and kind of marched through history. But as I've read your books over the years, you go even to a deeper level. I was kind of surfacely showing how there's a purposefulness behind the changes that have taken place in America. It's not an accident or a completely different country than we were 100 years ago, but yours go at a deeper level of the cultural rot and influence. And so before we get into a few of your books, just to, to give an overview of the, the important content, I want you to tell me, uh, because I always I love finding this out from people, what was, what was it that first awakened you you know, everyone has a moment where they kind of something comes across uh, their desk or they read it or they watch it and they go, oh, my goodness, I didn't realize things are completely different than yeah. what I thought they were. But anyway, what, what's right. that moment for you? I'm just curious about that. Sure. No, it's a great question. I would say that there are probably several of those big moments. And maybe the first one in terms of the, the three books, Death of the Grown-Up, American Betrayal, and The Red Thread, the first one, which triggers all the others, had to do with um, becoming a mother. And uh, my husband and I had twin babies, and this is 30 years ago. And I was absolutely taken aback at this incredible resistance in my peer group of, of young adults to accept life's changes, to embrace motherhood, fatherhood, uh, responsibility, um, family, uh, the joys of these things, the cares of these things. There was this, there was this, this just kicks, kicking and screaming effort to stay a child, to stay young, to stay eternally young. And anyway, it was literally uh, a moment at our, we had twins, so we were kind of out of it for a while. At their first birthday party, a bunch of grown-ups came. <laughs> we finally saw some of our old friends, right? And one of them was my husband's employer at the time. And I remember introduce, introducing, they're one years old, but I remember, you know, pretending to introduce these little toddlers to my husband's employer. 
and just say, girls, this is Mr. So-and-so. And he said, oh, I'm not old enough to be a Mr. Call me Bob. <laughs> and I think that was that was the moment this book was born because I just remember looking at him and thinking, you are old enough to be a mister. You have a family, you have a mortgage, you have a job. Why aren't you a mister? And it was just one of these things that started me noticing what it was like to try to bring young, you know, children into a world where the the grown-ups did not want to lead, did not want to model, did not want to be grown up. So that was a big moment. And um I had been a journalist um, before they were born. And once they were born, I, I wasn't working. Uh, well, I was working, of course, but I, I, I entered a new kind of work, which was basically when they were asleep. And so my essay writing, my, my writing changed <clears throat> from more repertorial work where you, you know, needed to be nine to five um, to this kind of thought piece and the death of the grown up kind of, grew around that little tiny moment at a birthday party. Yeah, no, that is so interesting. And then as you dug in, because you started to realize, okay, why aren't people Ooh. growing up? What were just, yeah. kind of give an overview, what were some of the things you found, maybe the purposefulness of this mm -hmm. culture that was intentionally, you know, encouraging people to be like children, even when they're 40 yeah. years old? What, what what some of the things you found that, again, tie back to these Marxist influences and things, but what was it? Well, you were probably ahead of me on that because I did not see the, in I didn't see the intentional aspect at that time. I watched, I was looking at the surface and I was seeing what had taken place, the changes that had taken place. There were, there were concrete changes that did enable this and, and really make it, um, certainly make it possible. For example, the affluence following World War II in America, this put money in the hands of young people, very teenagers, in a way that never unprecedented in human history. And that teenage influence certainly helped shape a very infantile kind of culture, or at least mass marketing infantilism or sophomoricism or whatever you want to call it. Um, but you just see this trajectory down in terms of culture. Um, and you could say, well, that has something to do with with economics, then you see the rise of science that kind of takes um, a lot of uh, traditional child rearing out of the home, you know, to the experts, that kind of thing. So you start, you can see certain, certain concrete things taking shape. Um, but in terms of, um, well, I'll tell you what happened. It was kind of an interesting thing in the sense that um, after 9-11, because I didn't write the book until after 9-11, and the book is actually not really about family life at all. It, it is a very uh, uh, broad look at culture and society. And in the after effect <clears throat> of 9-11, of when it seemed to me that we had a culture that had not grown up to the point of even being able to have a, if you want to continue the metaphor, a grown up conversation about Islam. We could not talk about Islam after 9-11, right? right? And I knew this at a very uh, uh, concrete level because I was an editorial writer at the Washington Times at the time of 9-11 and a columnist uh, uh, just started my syndication at that point. And so I was finding very, very clearly in my daily work what it was like to try to have some kind of investigation into Islam. And I, I ended up going back to this notion of the death of the grown-up as being something very dangerous to our survival. And that is kind of the trajectory of that book, which um, was a much more interesting book uh, to me anyway, than just you know staying with the cultural aspect. So it sort of does a overview of the culture and then goes into this very um, uh, political aspect of why the death of the grown-up is so dangerous. But as far as intention, intention goes, Here's another one of those moments, Curtis, which you asked about first. When I was working, this is, I, the, the Death of Grown Up came out in 2007. Uh, I was working on American Betrayal a few years later and working with uh, kind of a deeper dive. So it's sort of the death of the grown up, but it's, it's like the prequel. How did we get to this cultural uh, decay basically? 
And I have this phrase, I forget what chapter, but somewhere in American Betrayal, there is this moment where it suddenly occurred to me, what if the death of the grown-up were in fact a murder? And so it's this notion that things were done on purpose to dumb us down, to change the culture, to sexualize children, to uh, destroy the family, to destroy. I mean, this is kind of, so my own real um, serious study and it's kind of when you start, you start, I keep thinking of submerging and submarines and things like that. But when you really try to start, start going below the surface and see who's working on underneath behind the scenes or under where you can't see them, that's when you really start to see uh, the impact of these Marxist networks, um, the Frankfurt School, um, the One Worlders, the, um, the communists, and you realize that this is actually an incredibly deeply thought out, very strenuously uh, uh, advanced plan. That's right. And yeah. it doesn't mean everyone knows about it or everyone is privy to a plan or everyone doesn't have different plans. There, there are many, many plans, I think, involved in this. But there is this, this effort to destroy, you know, we use the phrase Western civilization a lot, but there is this effort to destroy basically uh, Christianity, the family, all the basics that created, um, that we were able to create civilization with. Right. And so I guess it probably took me to that point, which is, I started working, I was working on Ernest and American Betrayal in say 2010 during the Obama years. And that's when a lot of these things became clearer. Um, and then you start peeling the onion back, 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 and you you have to keep going back. And you went to 1883, which is a good date, you know, a hundred years, you can go farther back, but back to that, that point. And you realize the effort and the uh, organization and how these people remain connected in certain ideological ways. And that was kind of the the, the book that, that came out in 2019, which is The Red Thread. The Red Thread being my way of thinking about how these uh, these people, these, these successive generations of people affect our politics to this day. And in that sense, in that book's case, it's a small book um, that was looking specifically at how to identify or could you identify ideological drivers inside the anti-Trump conspiracy. So by, by 2019, I'm talking about conspiracy. And I remember when I chose that title, you know, coming up with that title, I remember, you know, I felt like I was pushing the envelope, conspiracy. You know, I wanted to say that word in the title. Um, and I feel like now I think there's a lot more understanding. I don't know if you agree, but I think there is more understanding that we are looking at, at you know, secret actors trying to take us down um, illegally, you know, not transparently. And I think people have more understanding that that is actually a real thing and aren't as afraid of this, these ideas as they were uh, when, you know, mass media and the CIA were basically telling us anyone who thought there was any kind of conspiracy about anything, um, you know, was crazy. Yeah. So that's been a really helpful weapon against us putting things together. Oh my goodness. Yeah, I mean, they, they so effectively did that they made us all believe, and we all kind of did for a while, that there are no conspiracies. Right. Things just happen by accident. It's just the way things go. There's nothing. Yeah, Lincoln was assassinated just yeah. like that. And, yeah, you just, know, the mafia works just so by chance. And, you know. Right. <laughs> no, it's, it's, uh, well, what's interesting about the, the death of the grown up is the things you just notice from your life. What's going on here? Why can't this man? be called Mr. <laughs> and he's like a little child. Yeah. But of course, we know now, whether it's the naked communists and those 45 current communist goals, yeah. even towards Soviet America by William Z. Foster back in right, 32. Right. That was all part of the plan. You were just yeah. noticing the effectiveness of their infiltration right. of the institutions of influence and their penetration to start changing us as a people from within. And so that that's so that's really interesting to me that it wasn't a Marxist thing. It was just a cultural thing. You notice, like, why is this happening? And then later you dug in to go, oh, now yeah. I see why it's happening. Right. Yeah. Right. And and I think I think a lot of really good researchers and thinkers and and good people 
never get to that point. And it could be partly because we're at such a point along, you know, we're so, what minute is it before or after midnight? I mean, you know, we're so, we're so far along in this process that it's probably um, a bit easier at this, at this time to, to, to really get a grip on it. But, you know, one of the big revelations, I would say, I'm thinking it's in the last couple of years, I saw some documents, which I cannot find again, but it was, it was some sort of a paper or a memo coming out of a Rockefeller organization. And it was literally discussing how they would be able to convince women to, to leave the home in en masse and get jobs. And essentially feminism itself not being an organic creation at all either. That was another insight that I came to. And that was that one was relatively late. I'm a little embarrassed. But, you know, just seeing the extent to which they literally were orchestrating these things. Yes. Um, it's incredible, you know, because you kind of looked at I used to look at our culture and, and you know, death the grown up is the, the result um, and really just try to understand, well, why were why did we want to why did we want to change this way? Why did women suddenly become feminists? Why did um, you know, rock and roll suddenly become the only music, you know, just things like that. Yeah. And you try to explain them and observe them and and you can, you can figure something out about it. But in terms of understanding the assault on our culture um, that was that was calculated and and I'm reading a book right now uh, that came out. I wish I'd read it before Death of the Grown Up. Um, it would have been a better book. It came out in 2006 and you've probably read it. It's Ralph DiTaladano's Cry Havoc. Yes. And if you haven't, I'll send yeah. you the PDF. You can share yeah, it because it's it. very rare. Yeah, it's great. And, and you know, he makes, he makes, and he was writing at the end of his life. So presumably it took him quite a long time to put it all together as well. Um, I think he was in his eighties when he wrote this book. Um, it, it, it essentially is, is showing the synergy between the Fabians, the Marxists, the Bolsheviks, the Frankfurt School, um, the Cambridge uh, Five spies, you know, Kim Philby and the rest. All these, 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 um, these movements and, and persons that seem to be on the same side, but they're different. But then you realize that they actually have these, these um, interconnectivity and overlap and sometimes quite close and other times they're just degrees of separation between them but it's it's essentially the the same movement with different um different 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 fighters different different fighting forces and it's all the same and what is it it's it's a cultural assault on western civilization yeah and they wanted it to be and they planned it and we have to grapple with that somehow. I think in some ways it's a relief to know that we humans just didn't do this on their own. <laughs> no, exactly. It's not a natural so, unraveling. It was a it was it, helped. <laughs> they they created yeah. the snowball and started pushing it. Right. Um and it's and it's grown. And then it grows on its own because human nature is going to when you're encouraged sure. to tell when you're encouraged oh, sure. to satisfy yourself and not have responsibility like the death of the grown-up then yeah it's, it's appealing to people to shirk their responsibilities and do that but it sure it, but it was so so clearly uh instigated it's manipulation yeah, yeah it's manipulation yeah the and people are manipulatable yeah that's right they're so i mean vladimir lenin was such a genius of knowing how to manipulate others to do the work of the communist or to, to right. whatever. One of his sayings I love is um, the best way to control the opposition is to lead it ourselves. And it, which talks about obviously subversion, infiltration yes. from within. And then you use, whether it's the church, whatever, you use it to your advantage, you infiltrate sure. and control. But I think that's what that why all these groups um, in my opinion, it's the Marxists who really were the masterminds of, of realizing we can get these Democrats on our side, we can get these progressives on our side, these socialists, um, yes. but knowing that socialism was the road to communism, knowing that if once we create the government that is capable of providing everything, it's also capable of taking away everything. And that's what we want. We want total, exactly. absolute control. Um, no, that's well. So, Death of the Grown Up is a classic. People, if you're interested in just understanding 
the cultural changes and things, it's, it's, I think you'll really enjoy that. Six years after that, she wrote, which I call her magnum opus so far, <laughs> she might outdo it, but American <laughs> Betrayal, um, this is really amazing book. And I, I say that, as you know, people that watch this every weekend know me from the films and things. I was raised in a family that understood this stuff back in the 60s and 70s and 80s. We talked about stuff like this at the dinner table. But when my dad, um, who's been involved for 60 years, and he's still living, he's almost 90 next year. Um, no. When he read this, he bought an extra copy and sent it right to me. He goes, you got to read this. And I read it and I'm like, oh my goodness, she's pulled back five more layers to go down and understand the, the rottenness. Um, it's very sobering, but it's very important to understand because then it helps you connect today what's going on and it makes sense. But of what happened and what's been going on in this country for so long, that the, the, the Soviet penetration to our government with FDR at a level that we're just beginning to totally understand. It was it was everything. It was everywhere, as Whitaker Chambers had told us. No, no, they're they're everywhere. Joseph McCarthy tried to tell us. No, no. I think there's a lot of people that are working for the enemy that are plugged into the State Department and the Treasury and all these things, and nobody listened. Um, but I just take a few minutes, and and whet their appetite. You need to get this book. Everyone that loves truth, which is all of you, I know, because I know who you are. Um, if you haven't read this, you need to get a copy and read it and then share it with others. Because it just, again, it's it's one of my top five books ever that I've read that opened my eyes to this at a deeper level than helps me understand today better because of that. But just just a little bit, whet our appetite for that. But, but what was that about? What did you find? What, you know, from World War II to the Cold War, that that really shocked you and would shock others of, of just how early on the communists were able to have tremendous sway in this country. Oh well, thank thank you first for your sure. for your comments. That's very uh, thank you. Um, well, the 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 best way to to whet someone's appetite for that 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 course of of reading and, and and history, and I I have to warn people it will it may indeed turn everything you think you know upside down, because that's what happened to me. But the best way to kind of whet your appetite is sort of maybe to tell you how I even it, how it even turned into what it became, because I didn't set out to write that book that is published there. Um, I was working on something a different idea. And it, it, it had to do, um, again, go kind of, I figured that my my efforts to explain what we remember in 2010, say 29, we were still we were still at war in Afghanistan, in Iraq. Uh, we were still dealing with this Islamic uh, uh, penetration, Islamic expansion. Look at Europe was was absorbing this, these massive waves of refugees that would only get bigger as the decade went on. So I'm still sort of trying to unravel the problem of why can't we defend ourselves against this uh, very Western antithetical culture that whose law is going to destroy our law if if it takes hold. And I decided that the death of the grown up wasn't quite enough to explain why we couldn't stand up to this, that it seemed that there was this emptiness in us. We had no no volition and nobody could really say anything, this non-judgmentalism about everything. So I started kind of looking at that. And at a certain point, I realized that the problem wasn't that there was an emptiness. The problem was that we'd been completely sort of, our innards had been essentially taken out and replaced. There was something there, but it was not nothing. It was this Marxist kind of, um, I think Robert Conquest, the great historian, called it the residual muck of Marxism-Leninism. So it's it may not be identifiable to a Marxist scholar as Marxism, but it's that general destructiveness, which is basically what Marxism is, right? I mean, it's destructin, destruction. So the, the question became when, when, what, what point, I didn't know yet when to go back, what I should go back toward. I didn't have 1883 yet. I didn't know what date to even start looking at, but 
I, I realized that there was something going on when I could not talk about Islam on a TV show, for example, without being called an Islamophobe, that there was something that echoed in my, my memory, or actually, to tell you the truth, there was a book that helped. Uh, a real light bulb book for me was uh, M. Stanton Evans, um, uh, Blacklisted by History, which is the the secret story of, of Senator Joseph McCarthy and his enemies. I think I'm messing up the subtitle, but Blacklisted by History was Stan Evans' magnus opus. Yeah. It was the... Um, the restoration of Joseph McCarthy's uh, uh, political reputation. This is a masterful work that essentially revises all of the history of jo Joseph McCarthy that we've all been taught and, and had drummed into us that he was the evil devil dog of American history. Um, I had read Stan Evans' book and I knew nothing really about Joseph McCarthy, very little going into it. And at the end of that book, <clears throat> around this was around 2008, I thought, my gosh, if everything about Joseph McCarthy was wrong, what else what else is out there that needs to be corrected? And when I started having these these Islam discussion problems, I remembered that, you know, back in the day, they were called red baiters. If you talked about communist sub subversion in America, one of the conversation enders was you're a red baiter, which was very much like Islamophobe for in terms of conversation ending. So I was studying that era a little bit more and and Stanton Evans had, had talked about how McCarthy, who was operating in the 1950s when he when he had his um, investigations and in the Senate, he had been um, preceded by Martin Dyes, who was the uh, one of the original chairman of the House on american Activities Committee in the 1930s. So if you can go from the 50s, you can go to the 30s. So I went back to the 30s and started understanding that they were having these same kinds of uh, subversion studies and investigations and problems talking about things. And there was the same, the same uh, pressure to hide the truth and not expose. And I started on relearning re American history. It wasn't about um, right versus left or Republican versus Democrat. It was who will expose and who will hide? And the people who hide are the evil ones. Basically, we can go back to the Bible on that, right? Yeah. The people who expose, it doesn't matter what party they were in, the people who wanted sunshine on the truth, who did not want to allow conspiracies to, to take hold inside the government and illegally transform things, for example, this was the side to to track and to, and and to rework to reorganize our understanding of the past, and in many ways that is one of the subtexts of American betrayal, looking at who is who is trying to uh, bring sunshine to these mysteries and just tracking that through um, this same period. It really flips everything because people you think are um, uh, liberals or uh, Democrats they are hiding things. And then you find the Republicans or the so-called red baiters. What is red baiting? They are trying to expose secrets. They are trying to, to help people understand what is happening. So that became kind of a new way of, of looking at the past. But the problem with it, Curtis, was that, you know, all the heroes that we are, we are given in, in school and all the people up on pedestals and everything else just start falling Bam, 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 bam. I mean, the thing is, you start realizing that our history, as we are taught, as it keeps being written, is a lie. And and it it's almost entirely a lie. And this became my task at American Betrayal, which is just one book, to try to undo some of these lies. And what you start understanding, and I should I should add another strain of what I was doing. In the 1990s, there, after the Soviet Union, um, do we say dissolves, reorganizes, whatever, whatever happened there, it didn't, it didn't really go away entirely because the Communist Party didn't go away, the KGB didn't go away, but in its reorganization in the early 1990s, there was a brief, and I've ultimately realized controlled, 
opening of archives that allowed some of the information about what had happened in terms of KGB directed um, infiltration of our government and, and the British government, other governments. There was a revelation of some of these documents, particularly from the World War II era, that showed what where these people were in terms of their infiltration and the, the level to, to which these communist agents rose, for example, in the Roosevelt administration in the 1930s and during World War II, very much during World War II and the aftermath in the Cold War, which is where American betrayal is centered. Um, it's extraordinary. It, it was essentially, um, I compared it to um, a kind of intelligence army occupation of the United States government. And that is a very shocking concept to, to, to kind of grapple with. But as I introduce it in the book, I basically introduce it the way the facts came to me. I, it's one after another. It's kind of like a detective story, really, because of course I couldn't see this right away. There was such total penetration of the White House, of, of Franklin Roosevelt's own personal staff, of the State Department, of the Justice Department, of the everywhere. And the media, of course, and other institutions, related institutions, that um, you have to reappraise our strategy and war making even in terms of what it was that these agents were able to accomplish and did it serve American ends or did it serve communist ends? And this is another kind of shockeroo because what I conclude is that the object of the war uh, the, the the strategy of the allies in World War II, meaning Britain, America, and Russia, which the Soviet Union was our ally, was subverted to a point where the goal wasn't to end the war as quickly as possible, like normal people would want to do, because the war, this is another shockeroo, the war could have ended too soon, meaning if Hitler had been overthrown and destroyed too soon, Soviet Union could never have expanded its borders and taken half of Europe at the end of the war. In other words, if the war could have ended in 1943, let's say, where there's there's a lot of reason to believe it could have, which I go through in the book, um, the Soviet Union, the Red Army, was still inside its border in 1943. If the war had ended too soon in Europe, meaning the Soviet Union would never have been able to get to Berlin, would never have been able to take all the captive nations. We would not have had a Cold War. We would not have had a Korean War. We would, we would not have had a Vietnamese War. I mean, the things that would not have happened had that war ended more speedily are staggering. And that those are some other shocks that you know the book puts together. So that's mm -hmm. those are just some of the kind of the the, the big picture pieces of, of what, what was going on once you start taking this particular trip through history and you just start seeing everything. <laughs> so many uh, uh, for Major Jordan's diaries, which you cover in there. Um, mm. yeah, I the, love George the, Racy Jordan. Yes, and the, the Lend-Lease and all this stuff. Now people, you need to read it because you, you have to understand that. Otherwise, here's what happens. When you don't understand real American history, even though it's it's sobering and it's discouraging to, to learn, um, then your patriotism will be used against you. That's Good the point. greatest weapon they have against us yeah. is they know we love this country and we do. And so if they can tell us the stories the way they want us to believe them, that we just trust government, it always does what's right and these wars are all necessary and we don't pull back the curtain to go, are they really? Are sacrificing right. boys all over the world? Is this worth this? And when you look at right. it, you realize, no, it's not. It's people, manipulating circumstances for their own advantage to get gain ground or to remove people from power or whatever it is what's going on right now in the ukraine everything this it's never what it appears to be and right. um right and so but but that's why you, you need to, to to get this book and read it because then you'll start to see that and then it helps you to have a patriotism that is just grounded in the principles this country was founded upon it's, right. it's not waving the flag usa usa it's no i i love what it was founded upon. And I would die for the principles it was founded upon, but I will no longer be manipulated to go along with what the person is saying when they are waving a flag. 
whether it was right. George W. Bush waving the flag, so we, oh yeah, we got to go to war here, whatever, our side, their side, whatever, anyone coercing us and using our patriotism against us is our enemy. And, and we need to, but the best way to not be deceived by them is to really get the big picture. Right. Um, and, and it's, um, and I know there's so much more on there that we could cover. I know we don't have time to get into all the individual things, but just that when I read them, <laughs> even like for, to t- tell for a minute, the, the incident in 43, I believe it was, um, when some of the top Nazi officers came and were willing to <laughs> to turn right. over Hitler. Talk, talk about that. That was it's so shocking. So I couldn't believe it. It's shocking. Yes, I'm glad. I mean, it, 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 I couldn't believe it either. Again, it was every morning. Um, and at this point, I was I was doing I, I like to work very early in the morning. And I would be alone in the dark with this information before I could get it out. And it was um, <laughs> it was it was shocking. I was shocked every day. I was just Boom, boom, boom. It's amazing. The the German story was really shocking because we have been taught um, the theory of collective guilt. All Nazis are guilty. All Germans are Nazis. And this has been a basis of our of our kind of pivot or our understanding of the war period um, as, as students and citizens. And what I learned was that there was tremendous division among the uh, Germans in all walks of life, and that there were some extremely advanced and organized opposition movements to Hitler, underground movements that were anti-Nazi and anti-communist. And the anti-communist piece of it is where they were uh, kneecapped by communists who had infiltrated our government. So for ex- it, it's a fact that the German underground during World War II was the only underground that, that the allies did not assist. There were undergrounds in every Nazi occupied country in Europe, for example, and they were assisted as best it was able to do, except the Germans. Germany was so important to the communists. There was a, a many stories, uh, the, the head of the Abwehr, the G- German secret police, was also trying to overthrow Hitler and deliver him to the um, to the Allies, Admiral Canaris, who would be executed twice. He was brutally murdered twice, effectively twice. He was essentially mur- almost murdered once and murdered again by the Nazis in a concentration camp for his role in his Hitler opposition. There were um, very advanced discussions with an emissary of FDR, a really wonderful American character named George Earl. And, I, and just as an aside, even as many um, heroes that were presented were falling off their pedestals as I was doing this research, I was finding so many new American heroes that should be very well known. One of them is this man, George Earl, who had been a New Deal governor of Pennsylvania, very much a blue blood American family uh, kind of person. And he had a real transformation of himself during the war. And uh, one of the things that he became involved in was working with the the anti-communist, anti-Nazi German underground to a point where they had worked out a a military plan to essentially uh, uh, turn Hitler over to the allies. And in exchange for, this would be the end of the, the Nazi war against the allies, in exchange for help in keeping the communists, the Red Army, on their eastern flank from invading Central Europe. They were very worried about what would happen to civilization when the if and when the the Red Army, the Communist Army, moved in to this vacuum that would that was created by the fall of, of the Nazi regime, and they wanted help to stop it. But the communists in America did not want to give that help. The ones in the government, and for example, that would include one such person was a man named Lachlan Curry, a very um, cleanly identified KGB agent who was one of FDR's top aides. And he was able to prevent a connection between one of these German undergrounds and the White House. Uh, Roosevelt and this German prince were had been friends before the war. Curry was able to keep them from connecting. Um, that that It's an amazing story, but that's just one little story. The president's top aide, Harry Hopkins, um, is very... Um, a uh, suspicious character and has been identified as as a KGB agent by a very eminent American um, expert named Herbert Romerstein. 
he certainly acted like one. And, and one of the things he was able to do is he was able to prevent George Earl from having his plans that he was working on with these, these underground people in, in Europe, in Germany and outside of Germany. Um, he was able to prevent the plans from getting to FDR. Now, whether FDR would have approved them is another question, but but Hopkins knew to to essentially squelch them. So this was going on. Um, Hopkins also, I discovered, when the FBI, uh, Herbert uh, uh, J. Edgar Hoover's FBI, they first began to discover that the Soviets were attempting to steal our most sensitive military secrets, the atomic bomb, contacted Hopkins as the president's top aide and asked him to let him let the president know that they had actually come across this incredible plot to um, uh, steal military secrets. And it's it's a long involved top level, top secret letter he writes to Hopkins and, and to uh, for Roosevelt. And what did Hopkins do with that information? He went up to the Soviet embassy in Washington DC and let them know that the FBI was was had surveilled them. And we know that from the 1990s when one of these Soviet archives, um, this one was actually stolen, so it had nothing to do with the fall of the Soviet Union. The Matrokin archive comes out because a KGB archivist pulls, you know, brings out his work um, at some point. Um, we know that that's what Hopkins did with it because it was written in the KGB archives that this had happened. So this is what we were dealing with. <laughs> <laughs> and we didn't know anything about it. And really, really very few people knew anything about it. I mean, that was, you know, sometimes you wonder, well, what could you possibly have new to say about World War II and the Cold War, um, which which I think is a good question. But it turned out that there had not really been on a large scale a, a um, interweaving of the history we know and then this 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 history of subversion that was sort of being treated as a separate pile and you can't do that. You have to put the the subversion history right into the real, you know, the the frontline history, the the front stage history. It's like backstage, front stage. You have to put them together to really figure out what happened. And I found an incredible effort to keep that from being done because they don't want us to know too much. No. <laughs> so they're happy to have it sort of be over as a boutique in you know special interest of certain scholars or something. Yeah. No, it's got to be front and center popular history. That's right. No, and that's why people need to read that so you get it. But because you understood that and you'd written that book, then six years later, because you realize now things aren't as they appear to be most of the time, you wrote The Red Thread. Now, what's interesting yes. to me is I hadn't dug in on that at all, but I remember the day Trump was elected, the next morning, they started you know, the Russian uh, collusion thing and all that stuff. And I knew instantly because I knew history. I said, oh, no, no, I don't know what's going on. I can't prove anything except I know the yeah. communist. I know that they would want Hillary to be president, period. They would not be working to get a guy that's talking about make America great again. I want to build up the military. So I knew instantly, OK, something's going on here. Period. Going on here. Just because of that, because I and I could say with one hundred percent certainty, but yeah. then you dug in to go, well, yeah. Not only was there something going on, it again had the red thread running through it of the connections yeah. of to these communist and Marxist and people that are actively working to take America down from within. Their fingerprints were all over that, which which makes sense. But that's interesting for people to understand. Too, when you go, why were they so after Trump? Because they don't want anyone that says make America great again. If someone right. means that, you you are their number one enemy because that's not their goal. Talk just for a minute about um, that book and and uh, you know how oh, important. That is. Yeah, yeah, no, it's 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 um, <clears throat> you're exactly right. There was every reason to know that we were being <clears throat> fed a, a series of of big lies. But how do you? How do you crack it? You know, especially at the beginning, and and I would say that the big reveal for me came. Um, I'm thinking it's at the uh, the date might be <clears throat> either the end of 2017 or the end of 2018, probably 2018. No, probably 2017. When 
a Justice Department official named Bruce Orr was implicated in this whole confusing story that we have to look back and refresh our memories on. Yeah. Turned out though, that Bruce Orr had a wife named Nellie Orr who was working for the shop that created the steel dossier, uh, Fusion GPS, that we had just, oh, a couple months earlier, discovered thanks to a, a Devin Nunes, I believe, forcing a bank somehow to reveal this. We just discovered that the Hillary Clinton campaign had bought and paid for the Steele dossier. That was a really important fact to start building on, which we suspected, but now we knew that. Then we get Bruce Orr working to help launder this information through the Justice Department for, of the Steele dossier, et cetera. And he's got a wife who's actually working on it, a Russian-speaking wife. So I thought... And she also had been an academic. So I thought, aha, you can't really tell anything about a government resume, right? You can't look at Bruce Orr and really know much about him if you just look at his jobs. An academic, you can start looking at what she wrote, right? Yeah. Well, she wrote a lot of super boring, super boring story, uh, essays and reviews and everything. And, I, and it, it was very turgid kind of acad academic speak. And I'm reading it and I'm reading, it, I'm trying to figure out what it's all about. And I had to do all this other research to figure out what her context was. And essentially what it comes down to is that one of the key um, authors or creators of the Steele dossier, uh, Trash, had been in her academic career, an apologist for Stalin and the terror famine. Full yeah. stop. Yeah. That's a true statement. Yeah. And it took it took a while to get to that point where you're actually analyzing this, um, but I think the first thing I published may have been in the American Spectator on just that piece of it, analyzing her book reviews. I think it was, and coming to this um, really horrifying conclusion, but you, inescapable conclusion. And you even think, who is even around who who feels that way today? And what was this is jumping ahead a little bit, um, but. Uh, it seemed that the the later on in one of the Trump the Trump impeachment where the uh, the whistleblower Charamella, whose name we weren't supposed to say, if you remember that story, turned out he had written a, a book review of a book about the terror famine, and it actually used language that made it seem like he found it extremely inviting, although horrifying, but also kind of beautiful in a weird. I mean, it was you reading this, you're thinking these people are all crazy, or of course these people are Marxists, but. It, this the, the Nellie Orr piece of it was a real um, it was a real eye opener for me because you could say this is an ideologically driven anti-Trump conspirator. So the question was, are there more? <laughs> so you start kind of looking at them. And I, I'd like to just mention one thing, um, the piece of it about James Comey. Remember James Comey? I mean, where did he go, right? <laughs> they yeah. took him off stage pretty quickly, I guess, when COVID came along, like, boom, they're gone. But Comey was very important in this period. I'm sure everyone remembers, even though it seems like a long time ago. Um, Comey versus Trump is actually a deep story because what it turns out, I, I was able to find, again, all this stuff was open source. Comey wrote a senior paper at William and Mary, and it's online. <laughs> all of the, they did put all this stuff online now, so which is a good thing. You can read it, and it was a it was a it was a uh, paper comparing um, Reinhold Niebuhr and Jerry Falwell. And all you need to know when we look back on his comparison is we know who Jerry Falwell was, of course, and Reinhold Niebuhr was a Marxist uh, theologian. You know, that's a contradiction in terms. He was a Marxist, but he was inside the in Christian church. And when you when you look at his animus, Comey's animus towards Trump, I found it really useful and, and kind of interesting to me when you look at Trump's faith, how he was raised. Um, um, gosh, I'm blanking on his pastor in Manhattan. Um, oh, my goodness. He figures right into all of these politics and, and religious politics and communist and anti, he was, he was a, I'll remember it in a minute, but he was a very outspoken anti-communist pitted against Reinhold Niebuhr as a communist. So this was Trump's pastor in Manhattan. And it turned out that this, I thought, explained a lot about the animus, the deeper animus between Trump and Comey, which was not just political, it was um, also religious. And there was this very strong uh, 
uh, in the, the, the careers of these two particular men, Trump's pastor and Reinhold Niemoyer, who Comey calls his mentor, that's the other big piece of the story. Comey finds, has, has to this day, will cite Niebuhr as his mentor. Obama liked him a lot too, um, and others on the left, but they they faced off in the 1950s, say, communist, anti-communist politics. And I thought that that said quite a lot about the team or the, the, the conspirators against Trump and where they were all coming from. It wasn't just a matter of simple politics at all. This was very deep and spiritual and 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 philosophical. Yeah. And I, I just was kind of blown away by by that particular discovery. Yeah, no, that's um and I know the book goes into much more detail in that just connecting the thread through the whole thing where you just see again this the the the, the Marxists have been genius in just infiltrating, subverting pretending to be people that they're not and right. working their way into the top positions of our government. Comey and Brennan, both Brennan. Kind of admitted a few years ago, oh yeah, we'd been communists, but we're not anymore, whatever. I mean, that to me is just still so shocking. Right. You'd had head of right. the CIA and head of the, the FBI I'd say, well, yeah, at one point we were communists. That's, that's, a, that's, that's exactly true. Comey, Comey was a communist in college, he said. And and Brennan actually had voted for the Communist Party in the 1970s, which is deep freeze Cold War, yeah. and <clears throat> was was but it was fine with the CIA. Yeah. He he told them when he did his lie detector test, he knew he he couldn't lie about it, so he said, "Well, I better tell them this could be the end of my uh, access to the CIA." Oh no, it was fine. Because... It helped him rise to the top. No, exactly. I mean, that's what's amazing, but, but, but that's the, the reality yeah. of, again, what they've done where they're in these top positions, but have been since the 1930s. Um, yeah. with FDR's New Deal, that's one of the times they just came into government at every level, education, agriculture. It didn't matter because government expanded overnight, you know, doubled in size, and they were all waiting in the wings there in D.C. Right. And so many worked their way in. And then once a communist is in, they're in for life and they pull in fellow travelers and they're so committed to the cause. That's why the Comey and the Brennan thing, oh, I, I, I used to be a communist. I know that's there's no such thing as that unless right. unless like a Whitaker Chambers, you had a life changing thing happen, like becoming a Christian where then you realize and then, you know, it really happened because then they're the greatest attacker of communism and they're the greatest person standing against it because they were once in that evil and now they're against it. And of course, neither one of those ever had that happen. <laughs> so. Well, right, and quite the opposite because again, Comey to this day will claim Reinhold Niebuhr to be his, his leading influence in his life just as he was when he was a communist in college. So otherwise he would have obviously rejected him. Uh, you know, it, it's... It, it's it's quite clear. It's quite clear. Um, after all these decades and generations, and you know we're over a century into this, probably two centuries into this, we go back to the French Revolution and 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 so on. I think the question has to become: we have to start asking ourselves, who are we? I don't mean you and me, but I mean in terms of the United States, when we say, for example, the United States blew up the Nord Stream pipeline for a headline recently. Who is we? Exactly. Who is we? We the, Not only have we had this century of subversion, just completely changing, capturing us from within, capturing every all the institutions from within, we have also had the coup of 2020, whereby we have an installed puppet regime and the American people have literally no idea who's running the country. And so when, when people wearing American uniforms do X, Y, or Z, who are they? Yeah. And I, I don't mean the soldiers, obviously. I don't mean the individual soldiers, but I mean the, the commanders, the, the, the people phoning it in. Where is it being phoned in from? You know, we don't, we don't know. And so all, all of these things are all very well to look at as a process. But I've been more and more grappling with this notion that the process is complete at the top. You know, we are very grassroots committed to something else and back to America, real America. But in terms of what we watch as the spectacle of government and, and society, 
who who are they? And I don't know the answer, but I think it's we're getting to a point where calling them American is simply incorrect. No, that's right. No, it's become obvious that we have been taken over from within yeah. uh, by the elites, by the globalists, by uh, wanting to implement a Marxist type system for that control. China's the model, always has been. Um, but yeah, it's it's really, yeah, it, it, we don't know because the there's no transparency. There's no, um, I, it's just, it's shocking that we, yeah, we see our country doing things that are anti-American, that are against the best interests of the American people over right. and over again. And they just keep steamrolling forward. Even when we say, wait, well, wait a minute, what's going on? Right. No interest. It's, oh, you're a pro Putin or whatever. If you, you know, right. anything that you say. And so you're like, wait a minute. No, I'm an anti-communist, but I, right. uh, I want some answers. No, that it's, it's, it's a strange world we have entered, but the, but the good news is this, because of all these inconsistencies, millions of people have awakened over the last several years with COVID, with the lockdowns, with the vaccines, with the all this stuff coming out, books like yours waking, everyone that reads that, they're awake forever. Once you see the sun, you will never deny it's right. there ever again. So you, right. you're, you're, so that's what's so important, people. And I want to tell you this story because I want Diana West to hear it because she will appreciate it as an author and a researcher. We were going to get into J. Edgar Hoover, but I, we probably don't have time for that right now. But it's a story about this book, Masters of Deceit by J. Edgar Hoover. And it's, I, I've maybe said this on here before, but I want to encourage you with it. This story is, is a case in point of being faithful in the little things. You doing what you can do to make a difference. Well, I don't have a big audience. That's okay. Educate your five friends. Get five of these books and give it to your five friends and wake them up and then encourage them to wake their friends up. That's that's the, the success in this. It's always from the bottom up. It's always grassroots that really makes changes that last and that are going to go forward. But anyway, this book in 1961, my mom, uh, she was uh, pregnant with my sister. And the doctor told her, you can't get out of bed for the whole pregnancy because she'd already last, lost a few children. My dad was working full time for McDonnell Douglas in St. Louis, Missouri, and he was full time in graduate school, getting a doctorate in electrical engineering. So they were busy there in their early 20s. And while my mom is pregnant, sitting in bed, she reads Masters of Deceit and it, it wakes her up. Oh my goodness, I didn't know anything about communism. I didn't know anything about what was going on. And so she told my dad, she goes, Jim, you got to read this book. He's like, I'm too busy to read the book. I've got two things going on. And finally, he read the book. And so, it, again, this is just an example at so many levels, but a couple in their early 20s realized yeah. we need to make a difference. We need to do something. So, what they would do, my mom would read all the letters to the editor in the St. Louis newspapers each day while she was in bed. And whenever she read one from someone that got it, she realized they understand what's going on. She would call them up on the phone and say, we need to make a connection with you. Wow. And we need you to start a small group in your home. And my husband's going to come over and give a two hour lecture on communism to start your little group off. So they would do this one night a week, even though they were so busy. And my dad tells me this story. It's a classic one. He said, I came home one night, it was pouring down rain and I was just worn out from work and classes and everything. And right when I walked in the door, mom said, I got a meeting set up for you tonight. <laughs> He's like, no, no, I can't do that. And she goes, oh, you need to go. You don't know who might be there. So he was faithful in the little things. And he drove across the town in St. Louis in the rain. And probably because of the rain, only a few people showed up to the meeting. But he went ahead and gave his two-hour lecture on communism. When he was done, one of the men came up to my father and said, if half of what you said is true, we are in serious trouble. And my dad said, well, that's why I'm doing this, even though I'm so busy. And so they became good friends. And that man started borrowing everything my dad had, all the books he'd read, everything. And in a couple months, he knew more than my father. And he came to my dad and said, Jim, I'm going to quit my job and write a book on this. And my dad's like, well, well, don't get carried away. And he said, no, he said, no, I've got enough savings to last two years. So he quit his job. He researched for two years and he wrote a book. He finished the book January of 1964, but he couldn't get anybody to publish it because he'd never published a book before. 
So we self-published this, and I know you'll appreciate this as an author. I mean, 1964 America, if you wanted a copy of his book, you literally had to send him cash or check in the mail. It was, yeah. it was not in a bookstore in America. There's no internet, there's no credit cards. And in eight months, out of his garage in 1964, he sold 6 million copies. And when Ronald Reagan was elected president of the United States, he said, I would never have been elected president of the United States if John Stormer in 1964 had not written the book, None Dare Call It Treason, the book from the man that came to my dad's meeting. And I know you would appreciate that as an author. And, uh, and Mr. Stormer was one of our family friends for 50 years. And I remember having dinner with him once, not too many years ago before he died. And said, Mr. Stormer, what was that like? And he said, I mean, when you're just, it just took off. And he goes, well, it's what you always hope, but you know, you <laughs> don't know. And he said, it was so exciting. We'd go to the post office and they would, we'd have averaged 40,000 orders a day for eight months, every single day. We'd get the big bags, <laughs> the big bags of mail. They'd have many of those for us every day to pick up. We had to open Whoa. each one. He said back then almost everyone sent cash because it was just a different world. They weren't sure. worried about you stealing. So he goes, I hired some Harley groups. I, anyone I could get to help me just ship things out every day. Yeah. But, but that book had made it's a big difference. And, and so I tell yes. you that. <laughs> I did. Yeah. And everybody, I tell you that because you might not be the person to write the book but you might be the person to influence the person yeah. that writes the book. We just all have to be faithful with what God has given us to do. He's given you the exact stage you're supposed to have, whoever you are, but you have to be faithful with it. To, to stand for the truth, to, to uh, live the truth, um, and to speak the truth to others, and then he can worry about the details of how it all unfolds. But I just, I've seen it in my own life, my own life and the life of my family, God's faithfulness to bless even this film dan i don't know if you're familiar with it but i'll get you a copy of it yeah. but agenda grinding america down so first film i ever made in my life didn't know anything about it but i came across all this stuff and started to realize back in 2008 something's going on even deeper and i made that film we had over 25 million people watch it online we it, it spread all over it's been translated in about 10 different languages and yeah. it was just it was neat to see i go you know, I just was faithful in the little things yeah. and, and then God blessed it in that way. But um, but I appreciate what you've done, Diana, and I know God will continue to use your just investigative journalist qualities of research and digging in and being patient to follow the trail, to find the truth, uh, which we appreciate greatly. Your books, I'll have the link below. You can get all three of those books we talked about right now on Amazon for $40, all three of them, or you can buy them individually if you'd like. Um, but you also have a Patreon channel, don't you? Yes. And Patreon, yes, if you're not familiar with that, it's where you can go and become a monthly subscriber, kind of like Agenda mm -hmm. Weekly, all you sweet people that do this, that helps me be able to do this. Well, she's another person that needs that support too. When she's researching something to write the next book to wake people up, no one's paying her. <laughs> That's the way it works in this game. And so, I encourage, but I encourage you, the link below is to her Patreon channel, to getting the books. And I encourage you, those that, that thought this was interesting, go do that. Take a few of your dollars to encourage and support someone that's making a difference, that's trying to stand for truth. And then each of us in our own way, and she's given you great tools to make it easier for you to make a difference too. That's that's the beauty of the of people that are writing things and making films is once they finish, then your job's a lot easier because you go, I just get that book and give it to Bill. And when Bill reads it, he's gonna be blown away and then we can talk about it or whatever. So, but uh, Diana, I appreciate you joining me so much. Do you have any closing comments or, or anything you'd like to say? I just love that story. <laughs> that is a fabulous story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I've I've enjoyed speaking with you so much, Curtis, and I so appreciate having the opportunity to speak to your followers and readers and all the sweet people. So it's just wonderful to connect. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed that. I know we covered a lot of different things and just little bits of her books. There's so much in the, all three of those books that you would really enjoy if you love learning. I encourage you to get them. Also, her Patreon channel is below where you could make a one-time donation or a monthly donation to help 
further her work and to help her be able to do the research necessary to write the next book that might awaken millions to the truth about what's going on. But our verse for this week is Proverbs 28, 26. Here it is. He that trusteth in his own heart is a fool, but whoso walketh wisely, he shall be delivered. Just think about that. The Marxist, as well as many others, have always pushed that line. Follow your heart. Do, do what's best. What does the Bible say? He that trusteth in his own heart is a fool. Because <laughs> the Bible tells us the heart is desperately wicked. But whoso walketh wisely, he shall be delivered. I pray that you'll walk wisely this week and in the months ahead. And until next week, God bless you. <laughs>